0: I wonder please would you turn in your Bible this morning to Second Chronicles, the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles uh, chapter thirty-five, the thirty fifth chapter of Second Chronicles I want to just speak very briefly this morning on the latter moments of the life of King Josiah. King Josiah was the 16th king in the territory or in the land or the kingdom of Judah. And I'm sure that most of you will recognize that there is a distinction between the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. The kings of Judah, they followed father, son, father, son, in terms of their dynasty. But in the line of the kings of Israel, it was very often the survival survivor of the fittest. There were many who took over the kingship of Israel because of rebellion or because of warfare, but the line of Judah was wonderfully preserved uh, from father to son right down. And the reason, of course, is uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ would come from the tribe of Judah, Uh, and there were many attempts, indeed several attempts, uh, to break that line. We can think of Queen Athaliah seeking to destroy the royal seed. We can even go back further and uh, think of Goliath and his attempt to take the life of David. But yet God preserved that line, Uh, and so when we read of the kings of Judah we are certainly reminded of God's providence in a most wonderful way. So we're going to read about the 16th king, a man called Josiah from the king of Judah. Commencing at verse 20, we'll read through to verse 27. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho king of Egypt came up to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him, and he sent ambassadors to him, saying, What have I to do with thee, thy king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, forbear thee from meddling with God, who is with me, that he destroy thee not. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him and hearken not unto the words of Nico uh, from the mouth of God and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, have me away for I am sore wounded. His servants, therefore, took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had. And they brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in one of the sepulchers of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah And all the singing men and the singing women spake of Josiah in their lamentations to this day and made them an ordinance in Israel. And behold, they are written in the lamentations. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to that which was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds first and last, Behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. We end our reading there at the last verse of this chapter, knowing that God will add his blessing to the public reading of his most precious word. Let's just very briefly unite our hearts together, please, as we pray. Father, as we come to the closing moments of our morning worship, we pray that thy spirit would minister directly to each one of our lives. Hide this human instrument behind the cross. He is but man and therefore marked with flaws and frailty. But Lord, thy word is a living word. And we pray that thy word today will challenge, comfort, and convict. But above all, may it be used to magnify Our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we humbly and we reverently pray. Amen. The reign of King Josiah over the territory of Judah had very much to commend it. For several decades, the nation of Judah was steadily accelerating towards political, social, and spiritual disaster. While the decline was temporarily arrested in the days of his grandfather Hezekiah and his father Manasseh, Josiah emerges as a reformer in a critical moment of his people's history. His zeal in removing the altars of idolatry, of reviving the nation's interest in celebrating the Passover and of centralizing the attention of his kingdom to the authority of Holy Scripture endured that Josiah would leave a legacy that would prove inspirational to future generations. There is therefore nothing that he said or did that could conceal this important part of his ministry. And yet at the very end of his life, he engaged in a situation that proved fatal to his earthly well-being. The king of Egypt had a controversy with the people of Persia and set out on a military campaign against the house of this embryonic empire. His route brought him within the recognized travel area of Judah. On hearing of the Egyptian army being within the vicinity, Josiah went out to confront Nicom and his battalions. There is no immediate evidence to indicate that Josiah or Judah were under any threat, but for whatever reason, he moved against the king of his southern neighbors. On seeing the assembled armies of Judah's king, and Nicol, the king of Egypt, sent ambassadors to Josiah to deliver a message that ought to have stopped this spiritually minded king in his tracks. Verse 21, for thee from meddling with God, for worthy from meddling with God. The story ends with the death of what turned out to be the last king before the period of exile commenced. Significantly, we read in verse 25 that Jeremiah, the prophet, lamented for Josiah. But the words for worthy uh, from meddling with God carry with them a timeless relevancy that cannot be demoted or devalued in their importance. Several generations back, it was Moses, the man of God, who constantly warned the Egyptian leadership uh, not to meddle with God. Now it is an Egyptian who is saying to the ruler of the people of Judah not to meddle with God. But the substance of the message remains the same. However, it is legitimate to ask the question, what does this mean? What does it mean for a man or for a woman In this 21st century uh, to meddle with God? Uh, And that is the question we must prayerfully uh, seek to answer. Uh, This we do so in the full acknowledgement uh, that God is sovereign in all things, and that none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? So therefore it is crucial that we learn from the scriptures what it means for any person to meddle with God. The first thing I want to emphasize is that to meddle with God is to dismiss the Word of God. We have already drawn your attention to Josiah's appreciation of the rediscovered scriptures. For when he heard What the law of God declared, he rent his clothes in an act of public and of personal humiliation. He publicly recognized that the God of the Bible, while the personification of love and of mercy, was also one who expressed his wrath on any deliberate act of disobedience. Uh, This thought inspired him uh, to lead the people back to uh, the word of God. And it is significant that we know whose writings he sought prayerfully uh, to implement. In verse four of the 35th chapter, we read that the writings were according to David, king of Israel, and according to the writing, of Solomon, son. By reading or hearing uh, from the writings of Solomon, uh, Josiah would have been conversant with what this wise man said on the subject of meddling. Remembering our text this morning uh, that the king of Egypt is saying to the king of Judah, uh, Forbear thee from meddling with God. And four times in the book of Proverbs, Solomon is inspired to present the negativities that are linked to meddling. In Proverbs 17, verse 14, the beginning of strife is as one letteth out water. Therefore leave off contention before it be meddled with. Proverbs 20, verse 19 he that goeth about as a talebearer revealeth secrets, therefore meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. Proverbs 24, verse 21, My son, fear thy the Lord and the King, and meddle not with them that are given to change. And then Proverbs 26, verse 17, And this applied without question to Josiah, he that passeth by and meddleth with strife belonging not to him is like one that taketh a dog by the ears. I contest that any one of these texts would have been sufficient to alert King Josiah to the consequences of meddling. But as we have referred to the last reference, it seems to me unequivocally clear. He that passeth by, uh, that would fit into the objective in the mind of the king of Egypt. He was just simply passing by uh, the territory of Judah uh, to confront the king of Persia. And meddleth with strife belonging not to him. That is the barrier that Josiah sadly and tragically ignored to his own heart. Now the analogy of one taking a dog by the ears I confess is lost in me experimentally. But I can only imagine how ferocious any dog would react to a person is seizing the animal by its ears particularly if the dog was behaving in a non-threatening manner. Egypt's king was convinced that God was with him. A fact that indeed is confirmed in verse 22. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him, and hearkened not unto the words of Nicom from the mouth of God. It's interesting to note that Josiah adopted the exact same tactics as Ahab did in the days of Jehoshaphat. We, We should never seek to use others as the standard for our behavior. For while Josiah, for most of his life, privately and publicly conformed to the inspired writings of David, of Solomon, and of Moses he now rejects the message that is delivered by a non-Jew. That remains a major problem to this moment in time. Many determine the value of the message by the standard of the messenger. His perceived ability, his professionalism in articulation and communicative skills. Its preaching style, whether it's monologue or whether it's dialogue. The delivery of God's message should never, never be associated with some form of a theatrical performance. As if the preacher was just an actor. The message is always more important than the messenger. I have no doubt in my mind that if the prophet Jeremiah had delivered this warning to the king, he would have readily accepted it. But he clearly viewed this intervention as an audacious act, especially when a foreign king was telling a Jewish king to forbear from meddling with God. To meddle with God is to dismiss the word of God. To meddle with God is to despise the workers of God. No one can dispute that it is a major object in the devil's campaign of spiritual terrorism to despise the servants of God, past, present, or even future. We ought never to be ignorant of the fact that it is his strategy to envelop within a three-pronged attack a strategy against everyone who has been called out of darkness into God's line. The Lord Jesus Christ, in speaking to the pharisaical spirit of his day, he said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. And then he identifies this particular strand of the devil's attack. He was a murderer from the beginning. And in the same verse, he identifies the reality that the devil is a liar and the father of the lie. And in Revelation 12 and 20, we have the trilogy completed where it says he accuseth the brethren day and night. So the devil works on this three-pronged attack. He is a murderer. He is a liar. He is the accuser of the brethren. And daily he does strive to murder the witness of men and women of God. He constantly feeds the toxicity of lies into the vocabulary of his agents. And he Consistently points the finger of accusation against those who would challenge his hellish domain. It is therefore important that we who are saved by God's sovereign grace do not swell his ranks or strengthen his hands as he strives to meddle with God. Sadly, some of the most favored of people have turned their attacks and concentrated their hostilities against the Lord's anointed in an effort to assert their own will over God's will. I'm thinking immediately of Saul, the son of Kish, who by the matchless grace of God was brought from obscurity to prominence in a way that could only have been the Lord's doing. Initially, he bore all the marks of a man who believed that his mission in life was to glorify God, but soon the poison of self-elevation is seeped into every sinew, every vein, every fiber of his being causing the prophet Samuel to declare, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Saul continued to be king. He held that position He still wore the crown of his office. He still had the scepter in his hand as the symbol to rule the people. But his power was gone. Turning his heart into a fountain that spewed forth the bitter waters of despise against the person whom God had anointed in his place. I deliberately use the word despite to draw your attention just to the seriousness of meddling with God. Only twice in the Bible is that word despite used. It is used when the enemy spoke against the children of Israel in Ezekiel 25 And then Hebrews 10, it is used to speak about those who trample underfoot the Savior's precious blood. They count the work of the Holy Spirit despite. They dismiss it. In other words, they are meddling with God. The consequences of going against the preaching of the word has very serious consequences. We see it in our nation. We hear voices today that have changed and in their changing they have changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things who change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator. What does that lead to? It leads to men leaving the natural use of the woman, burning in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly. Many times you've heard it said, and it's a very grieving thing for many of us to hear, and it's increasingly part of the vocabulary of this generation. A man saying to another man, he's my wife. Or a woman saying to another woman, she's my husband. Let me make it very clear. What they are talking about is a psychological relationship that is contrary to this precious book. It is not a biological relationship. If I was to say from this pulpit that that window was a door You would question my mentality, and rightly so. But men have changed the truth of God into a lie. And our nation is accepting it. And the reason for that is clear. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And it is in light of these questions, questions that remind us of how shall they hear without a preacher, how shall they preach except to be sent, that we must earnestly pray that our nation will be exposed to this challenge not to meddle with God. Some of us are old enough to remember in 1966 whenever and Dr. Paisley, the Reverend John Wiley and the Reverend Ivan Foster were put in jail. And I still recall, as if it was yesterday, sitting in what was affectionately now referred to as the old Ravenhill Church. And Dr. S.B. Cook was preaching that Sabbath morning. And I still remember his text. It was this, from Acts 5. Refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. To meddle with God is to despise the word of God or dismiss the word of God. It is to despise the workers of God. But finally, to meddle with God is to deny the wonders of God. I fear it is this form of meddling that is probably the most prevalent in our generation. Right around the world, we have millions upon millions of religiously minded men and women, with many of these religions now deeply rooted into our own beloved nation. And there is no doubt in my mind that where we have a conglomeration of internationally recognized religions residing in a democratic nation it ultimately challenges the foundational belief of that particular nation. It did so in Bible times, so it's not altogether unexpected in our time. But this creates a major problem in that with an increasing spirit of boldness, men start to meddle with God. However, this attempt to interfere with the gospel is done in such a way that many are being deceived. The apostle Paul warned against this when he was writing to Timothy. He spoke of people having a form of godliness but denying the power off The apostle Jude took it a stage further. He said, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here it is. I can test that every person who is a sinner saved through God's sovereign grace deeply appreciates the wonder of the trinity we sincerely believe in god the father god the son and god the holy spirit three and one and one and three it is a doctrine that is interwoven throughout the bible for there are three that bear record in heaven the father the word the lord jesus christ and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. There are many other references that vindicate this great truth. But it is viciously denied by those who have no compunction to meddle with God. For example, the Quran, that is central to a massive population in our nation, It speaks of the Trinity as grotesque. It denies the Trinity. It holds it up to ridicule, to be condemned. But what is even more alarming, if you were to open up this morning a copy of the New International Version of the Bible, translation you would not find the Trinity there the Trinity is removed may I say this very lovingly that is meddling with God meddling with the wonders of God now some might argue that this denial is unimportant and will have little or no impact upon the nation. Nothing could be further from the truth. When the Holy Spirit is dishonored, he removes himself from the nation. When he is dishonored within the church, he removes himself from the church. And that's the great challenge that these words really emphasize. We're not to meddle with God, whether it's his word or his workers or his wonders. Many times, in dealing with moral issues I find that there are many very respectable people who are morally minded but may I make this point as I conclude morality doesn't bring me to Christ Christ brings me to morality. There are perhaps some very moral people in this congregation today, but they've never been brought to Christ. That's a tragedy because it has eternal consequences. On Wednesday I was coming back from India and because of my constant travel I I do have the advantage of going to some of the lines in the airport and I was sitting just doing some work and this young lad sat beside me he was sitting on a three-seater bench and I was just sitting at right angles And he said, do you mind if I I lie down? I'm tired. I said, not at all. And then he was working at his phone. And then he asked me about my background. And I told him a little. And he said, you know, this is remarkable. He said, on my way from Prague, he's from the Czech Republic. A great burden came upon my heart. About my soul and about eternity he said i never thought i would meet someone in the united kingdom who could help me he had an hour and a half to wait for his plane and i had three hours and we sat together talking his mother is saved and she was praying for him And just as we sat together we were able to open up the scriptures and confirm to him the way of salvation. Out of the thousands and thousands of people in Heathrow two people are brought together. I tell you that's the wonder of God. Don't meddle with God. God is the God of this book. He uses his messengers to convey his word. And he demonstrates his wonders. Because he is God. And beside him, there is no other. Thank you so much for listening. I trust that God will bless his word to your heart.